with your motives. Right? Wholehearted love is just that. It is wholehearted. It incorporates the entire being. It incorporates not only the actions, but also the intention and the motive. Amanda and I, we've been married for uh, almost six years. And let me be honest, she knows when my love for her is not wholehearted. She can kind of point that out. She picks up on that pretty quickly. I think like most spouses in the world, she can tell when I am loving her for the sake of love and when I'm loving her for the sake of myself. Right? She, she can sense that. You see, sometimes uh, I may do an outward act of love with less than stellar motives in order to get what I want. And so I clean the kitchen, I put our son Theo down for bed, and uh, then, I, then I ask her the question, hey, what do you think about me going to a concert tomorrow night? And so then when I ask her the question, I make sure that she knows that I just cleaned the kitchen, that I just put Theo down for bed, and I even put him in his pajamas because I typically don't put him in his PJs, right? I just think he's wearing clothes right now. I'm just going to put him down in the clothes he's wearing. Why put him in different clothes? Like, it doesn't make any sense. But she likes it when he wears PJs to go to bed. So, you know, I can do all the things that show her my love for her, but she can usually sniff out when I'm doing it for my own sake and I'm not doing it out of love. You see, the fact is, is that when my acts of love are motivated by personal gain, they are not actually acts of love for Amanda. They're, they're showing my love for myself. Wholehearted love does not work like that, though. Wholehearted love is, is driven by a desire and, and, and a, a craving to, to satisfy the others, to, to seek their good. So I put Theo down and I put on his PJs because I value that Amanda wants for that to happen, right? That is a better motive than, hey, look what I did. Can I go to the concert now? What do you think? Wholehearted love is driven by a desire to love the other and not the self. That's what Jesus is calling us to here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is calling us towards wholehearted obedience and love for God. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, then you know that we're in the middle of a series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. These are our three chapters within the book of Matthew that are extremely significant for the church because it's here that Jesus is, is teaching what it looks like to follow him. This is what it looks like to be a follower of, follower of Christ. This is what it looks like to be Christ's disciple. And remember what we saw last week in, in verse 17 of chapter 5. Do not think, this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I have come to a to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus in his life and in his teaching is showing us what this fulfilled law looks like. Here's what it looks like to serve God, to love God, to obey God in the truest sense. 
And we also saw that this is the type of law keeping, this is the type of righteousness that far exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now we went into this at length last week, but the main idea here is that the scribes and Pharisees failed to love God from the heart with a holistic heart, love. They sought legal loopholes in the law to justify themselves. They looked for ways to fulfill the outward letter of the law with their actions without obeying God from the heart. And so Jesus knew that. Like Amanda knows that's going on in my heart at times. Jesus knew that's what was going on in his day and in his age. He knew that's what his hearers were often doing. They were seeking to obey God with their actions. They would go to the law and see what do I need to do outwardly in order to obey God without going to the law in order to see what must I do on an inward level. How might I fulfill the heart of the law? Jesus is pulling back the heart. He's pulling back the idea that we need to look at our intentions. And remember last week we saw two examples of what this greater righteousness looked like. We saw that this sort of true righteousness hates uh, the idea of hatred because hatred is the root of murder. We saw that, that true righteousness resists lust because lust is at the very root of adultery. And tonight we see two more examples of what this true righteousness looks like. Here we will see that Jesus is correcting our misunderstandings on both divorce and what it means to make an oath. So I want to begin by just looking at our passage. So chapter 5, verse 31. Just read through these two examples of what this greater righteousness looks like. Beginning in verse 31. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair turn white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that is from evil. So I was reading this week in Time Magazine, And uh, the divorce rate right now in America, 2018, is approximately 39%. Uh, If you read the Barna study, which is a nationwide study that goes out every so often, uh, they suggest the rate is somewhere around 33%. Either way you look at it, it's about one out of three marriages that end in divorce. Uh, The rate of divorce for subsequent marriages... So let's say you get married a second time or a third time. Uh, The rate for subsequent marriages is double that. So we're talking 65, 70, 75% divorce rate. The chances for another divorce after you've been married a second time shoot up 
well above 60%. Well, that said, I mean, the divorce rate has gone down from its all-time high in 1980. So maybe you've heard something along the lines that the divorce rate is 50, 60%. Uh, In 1980, that was the trajectory we were on. Uh, But it's come down. And so we ask why? Well, the reason that divorce has gone down is because less people are getting married. The only people getting married are people who actually take marriage seriously. So what we also need to recognize here is that uh, there are less people getting married. The people who are getting married are more serious about marriage and the divorce rate is still one in three. And the unfortunate fact is, is that this statistic is still staggering in the context of the church. According to Barna, uh, the study, they, they say Christians who are committed to the church and attend once a week, they still have a divorce rate of about one in four, about 25%. I think any way you look at it, this is an epidemic, both inside and outside of the church. This is a massive issue. The family is the primary structural unit for society. The marriage bond is the most important relationship in a society at large in order for that society to succeed, in order for it to flourish. And yet marriage is falling apart all around us. And because of that, because this is such a, an epidemic in our culture, it's also a sensitive topic to discuss. I think many of you in this room feel the weight of divorce. I, I, I doubt there's anyone in this room who has not been in some way, shape, or form affected by divorce. Many of you have extended family members who have, who have been through divorce. Many of you uh, likely have, have friends, close friends who have been through divorce. I'm sure many of you in this room come from broken homes. And so you, you already know the weight of divorce. You know the brokenness and the hurt and the pain that comes with it. This is an extremely sensitive subject because so many of us, even in this room, are affected by it. Yet Jesus does not shy away from difficult questions. We saw that last week, talking about lust. We see this, uh, that this week when he's talking about divorce. This is one of the most difficult questions that Jesus faced during his ministry. And similarly for us, many of us, this is one of the most difficult questions we will uh, raise in our day and in our, in our culture. So before we, we jump into Jesus' word, let, let me just help us understand how this relates to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Notice how Jesus begins the paragraph in verse 31. It was also said, so we discussed this some last week, Jesus is looking at the common teachings of the age, of his day. He's saying, it has been said, it has been taught, you have heard from of old. And then he says, but I say. So he's correcting a a uh, misunderstanding of what is going on in the Bible. So, So people in his day had a misunderstanding of what was going on in the Bible in regards to divorce. And so he's correcting that. In reality, Jesus is addressing the fact that many of the individuals in his society, many of the people who are probably listening to this sermon, were looking for loopholes in the law so that they might justify their divorce. 
So they're coming to the word of God, trying to figure out how can I justly divorce my wife or my husband. Typically, it's husband divorcing wife in this culture. And so Jesus wants us to see the heart of the law, which is that God never intended for divorce to be the case in the first place. That was never God's intention for marriage. Look again at verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, as I said, Jesus is speaking against many of the the cultural practices of his day. Like I said, the, the, the leaders in that society, the religious leaders were seeking for any sort of legal stipulation they could find in the law so that they could justify their divorces. And we'll, we'll actually see that later tonight as we look at another passage in Matthew where we see the religious leaders coming to Jesus with this very question, accusing Jesus because of how he's speaking about these matters here in the Sermon on the Mount. So as we'll see here, Jesus is teaching his disciples that they need to look at the intention of the law in order to understand how they might obey God. You see, the, the law of Moses did permit divorce at times. Again, we'll talk about this a little bit later tonight. Um, and yet, Jesus is trying to tell his disciples just because Moses permitted it, doesn't mean that's what God intended for marriage. It should never be within the Christian's mind to pursue divorce. That's what Jesus' words here. They, 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 were, they were controversial in his day, and they still are controversial today. Jesus' statement throughout the book of Matthew on divorce and throughout all of his gospels present all sorts of questions in our own culture. Think about all the marriages that that you've come in contact with, couples that you're familiar with who have decided to split because they fell out of love. Think of all the people you know who broke off their marriage because they, they came into some sort of financial disagreement. Right? Couples in their marriages all the time for all sorts of unbiblical reasons. They don't feel fulfilled. They are not satisfied with their sex life. They're unhappy. They, they feel like they are inca- or, um, incompatible with their, with their spouse. Right? This was controversial in Jesus' day and it's no less controversial in our day. So, I want to point out uh, that this was controversial uh, to such an extent that the, ma- that the, the, dis- the uh, leaders, the religious leaders, came back to Jesus and questioned him further about this statement. So turn to Matthew 19. So in Matthew 19, we find Jesus repeat his words from the Sermon on the Mount and then he, he provides more clarification. He, he makes further comment on his words here. So Matthew 19, it's addressing the same topic. It's addressing divorce. In fact, it will be helpful uh, for us to spend some time here in Matthew 19 because it, it gives more details than what we find in, in Matthew 5. So verse 3, chapter 19 of Matthew. 
And Pharisees, those were religious leaders, they came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So notice their question there. Can we divorce for any reason whatsoever? Verse 4, Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And then Jesus stops talking. Notice at this point in the passage, two, two specific things have happened. First off, the Pharisees, they came to Jesus in order to test him, right? They're coming to him with motivation. They have a specific motive here. They're not coming with pure hearts. They're not coming with pure motives. They're coming to trap Jesus. Likely what it it seems is that they know what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and now they're coming with a contrary question here. Can we divorce for any reason? So Jesus... Jesus, uh, this is the second thing we need to see here, is that Jesus' response is remarkably straightforward. He goes to Genesis to answer the question. He goes all the way back to the, the ordering of creation. He goes all the way back to the beginning. Here's the very first marriage depicted. Here's what God intended for marriage. It's a one flesh union. And one flesh unions cannot be separated. God joined them together. Let no man separate them. And here, Jesus' response would likely elicit all sorts of questions within the Pharisees' minds. They were probably frustrated by this. They're coming to him. They're asking, hey, does the law permit this? And Jesus goes to a point in history before the law was even written to answer them. You notice what's happening there? So instead of going to the law to answer them, he goes to the purpose of marriage. He goes before the law was even created in order to answer the Pharisees' questions. He says, what does Genesis say? You know the word of God. So naturally, the the Pharisees, they get somewhat frustrated and they come at him with further questioning. It seems that they think they trapped Jesus in his words. They said to him, verse 7, why then does Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Hey, why then does Moses in the law provide a provision for divorce? They're trying to get Jesus to respond to the fact that at times, Moses did provide a reasoning, like a clear reasoning. Here's why divorce is permissible at times. So Jesus responds uh, in verse 8. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus quickly responds by going to the heart yet again. Jesus' point is that the Mosaic law made provisions for hard-hearted Israelites. And if you were here over the last few months when we were going over the the New Covenant study, uh, you'll remember that as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Christ, we are not hard-hearted Israelites. We are soft 
hearted, fleshly, spirit-filled Christians. So this whole provision for hard-hearted Israelites no longer stands, according to Jesus. God did not create the bond of marriage to be severed. And so Jesus is pointing out that for the follower of Christ, divorce is not an option. For the follower of Jesus, who have, who have uh, soft hearts and new hearts, who have this spirit, we don't need the provisions of Moses' law that were provided for hard-hearted Israelites. Now, you probably notice here that there is an exception in Jesus' own words located in verse 9. Verse 9, look at... Um, chapter 19 of Matthew, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus says that divorce is never the goal of a marriage. It's never the goal of the Christian, but he does provide an instance in where it is permissible. It's permissible when there is sexual immorality at play, when adultery is taking place. In other words, when your husband or wife is cheating on you, divorce and remarriage are considered allowable. So that's the provision Jesus is making here. Has your spouse cheated on you? Jesus makes the point that divorce and remarriage... uh, equates to adultery unless sexual immorality is at play. So you notice the connection here. He's saying you aren't making your spouse commit adultery if they committed adultery themselves. You aren't making your, your spouse an adulterer if they, if they engaged in sexual immorality while they were married. They're making themselves an adulterer. So he's saying in that case, divorce and remarriage are uh, acceptable. Because in a sense, the marriage bond has been broken. There's a one flesh relationship that has taken place and you're bringing other people into that. So there's a a brokenness in this situation. So Jesus permits divorce in that sort of situation. It's not permissible for any reason. Remember, that was the Pharisee's question. Can we do this for any reason whatsoever? Jesus has a clear answer. No. There's one specific reason that that is said. Yet, with that mention, we have to remain attentive to what Jesus is saying at at the higher level. Right? Jesus does make this one exception in the case of adultery. However, He's clearly pointing to the fact that we should not pursue divorce even in difficult situations. That's clear. Look at the intention of the law. He's going back to Genesis. If Genesis is the, the, the example of what it looks like to be in the marriage covenant, then divorce isn't an option. You've been made into one flesh. You see, we, we need to recognize that even... In the case of sexual immorality, it's, that doesn't make divorce ideal. That doesn't make divor- d- uh, uh, divorce the, the primary way to go. Divorce is never the only solution, it, it, even if there is sexual immorality. You see, in a situation where there is sexual immorality, God 
allows divorce, he permits it, but he does not demand it, right? There is a difference there. God is not demanding that divorce happen whenever sexual immorality comes into a marriage. He's just permitting it. And so here's what this means. As Christians, when we are entering into a marriage covenant, we need to enter in with the mentality that divorce is not even on the table. This isn't even an option. This is not something to pursue as a Christian. You see, God has shown his steadfast love to us. And now I can seek to show that same steadfast love to my spouse. Right? We want to be willing to lay down our lives for the sake of our spouse, just like Jesus did. Jesus laid down his life for the sake of his bride. And so that may mean that we go through seasons of difficulty and hurt and pain, but it's nothing in comparison to what Jesus did. He died for his bride. Are you willing to go through the pain and the heartache of of hurt feelings, brokenheartedness for the sake of your bride and showing your faithfulness to her and showing the faithfulness of God in reality? Remember, that's what... The, the church uh, or the, the, the covenant of marriage is actually for. It's to represent what God has done for his church. And therefore, in the covenant of marriage, we are just exemplifying God's love for his people. So let's be very slow to pursue divorce when we enter into marriage. It's never the, the ideal option, even in the most horrendous of situations. Okay. With that foundation laid, there are a couple of more passages that uh, we should look at within the New Testament that are relevant. They're relevant to discussing the topic of divorce specifically. So I want to look at a couple more passages and then we will go back to Matthew 5. So first off, 1 Corinthians 7 is extremely uh, significant in regards to this, this conversation about divorce and remarriage. So turn with me there to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, We'll begin in verse 10. Here's what Paul says here. This is Paul. He's writing about marriage. And he's writing about singleness in this chapter. And here he's talking specifically about situations where you have uh, spouses. And one is a Christian and one is not. What do you do in that sort of situation? So chapter 7, verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So far, Paul is consistent with Jesus' words. Divorce is never held up as a good thing. It's never something to be pursued. Verse 12. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." Here's what he is getting at. Paul is saying that there are situations where you have a a, a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse. And in that situation, if that unbelieving spouse is willing to stay, 
the, the believing spouse should never pursue divorce in that situation. And then he makes this practical implication here talking about the one making the other holy and the children being made holy. And you're like, what's going on there? Essentially, all he's saying is, as long as you guys are together, there is evangelism opportunities there. Right? You have a, a spouse who's a non-believer who's in relationship with you. That's an opportunity for that person to potentially come to Christ. Similarly, if you just divorce your spouse um, because that person's not a believer, now you're putting your children at jeopardy. Instead, if you stay, keep the family intact, now you have the opportunity to speak truth to the children as well. There's an opportunity for them to hear the gospel and potentially be reconciled to Christ. So... The Christian spouse has a duty here to be influential to both the the unbelieving spouse and the children in the family. But Paul continues, verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Again, verse 16 is speaking to that reality of an opportunity for evangelism in the context of uh, a marriage where one spouse is saved, the other is not. However, verse 15 is key for us here. In verse 15, Paul is speaking to the case of abandonment. So what if you have the unbelieving spouse and that person does not want to stay with the Christian? They don't want to stay with their believing spouse. They want to leave. They want to separate themselves. In that case, Paul says, the Christian is given freedom. They're not enslaved. And when we look at what he means there, most likely he's saying that the Christian is free to remarry in that situation because the Christian has been abandoned. They've been left. So, I mean, especially you think of of a a woman in this context who's not really able to make financial means. Um, If that person is left after coming to Christ, uh, their their husband leaves that woman because he, he doesn't like what's happening in this relationship now because she's a Christian. If that happens, Paul is saying, hey, that woman is not left out to dry. She she has freedom to remarry in that sort of situation. To be honest, I actually have friends who have been through this very type of thing. Uh, they become Christian, uh, a Christian after being married, and, and the spouse doesn't like what's going on anymore. The spouse decides to leave. Right? The unbelieving spouse doesn't like the fact that, oh, wow, my, my husband is now like a hardcore Christian. I don't like that. I'm out of here. So that happens at times. There are other situations, and, and I know people in this camp as well, they it's a Christian, a solid Christian. They marry someone they think is a solid Christian. Lo and behold, wedding passes, a couple months pass, and it begins to seem as though the spouse who claimed to be a Christian is no longer seeking Christ. Uh, it, it, all of a sudden, it, it's pretty evident after a year that this, the spouse wants nothing to do with Jesus and ends up leaving. I, I don't want any part of this anymore, and, and they leave. In those sorts of situations, though they are horrible, Paul is saying there is freedom. I think even in a situation like that, there is a desire to, to hold out hope as long as it is possible to hold out hope. So if 
the spouse leaves and is just living down the street, there's wisdom, I think, in remaining single until there is no longer hope, right? If that individual remarries, okay, like at that point, you're just saying, thinking, okay, he, he's remarried uh, and I'm single. I, there's freedom there to, to remarry yourself uh, is what Paul is getting at. Now, there's one other passage I want to point out. It's in Romans 7. You don't need to turn there, um, but let me just read it. I think for many of you that you'll, you'll think this is somewhat obvious, but I still think it needs to be said. It's chapter 7, verse 2, uh, Romans. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she, uh, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So here, Paul is simply saying, hey, if there's death, there's freedom to remarry. And I know for many of you, you're probably thinking, yeah, that goes without saying, but it should be mentioned. Marriage is not this, this eternal bond, right, between a husband and a wife that can never be severed even by death, right? That's not the Christian understanding of, of, um, of marriage, right? You'll hear that in some other uh, cults, uh, specifically Mormonism will teach that marriage is an eternal bond, but the, the Christian message, when you begin to read the New Testament, it does not teach that. It says after, after a death, remarriage is actually permissible. And, and in some cases, it's even, it's even encouraged. Uh, now, there's a couple of more things that I think need to be talked about here. I, I really wanted to just lay this out in, a, in the most clear fashion as I could because I think this is a a topic that's usually not preached on very much. It's not talked about very much in the church. So I do want to hit on a couple of more topics before we move on in Matthew 5. Let me first talk about um, the concern that many people have with abuse. What happens in a situation where abuse is taking place? Is divorce permitted? when there is abuse. Uh, I think that the first thing we need to point out is that separation is necessary. Immediate separation. Before we even begin talking about divorce, if someone comes and they are being abused, separation immediately. Get them out of the house, put them in a different house, get them into a safe space, get them away from the abuser. Um, Get the victim out of that situation immediately. And I would encourage you, if you're in a relationship where abuse is taking place, you need to get out of that relationship as soon as possible. That, that can't happen. There's no reason to remain in that sort of a relationship when you are being abused. Separate immediately. But this does lead to another question. Is that sort of situation um, a situation that permits divorce? Let me point out, there is no explicit reference of, 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 of abuse in the New Testament as a viable reason for divorce. It's just not mentioned. And so I'm not going to give a quick answer here because I don't want to give a quick answer to a, a, a topic that the Bible is silent on, if that makes sense. The Bible doesn't even speak to this, so I'm not going to be quick to offer out answers here. Abuse is something, like I said, where separation is necessary. It ought to happen immediately. 
But regarding divorce and remarriage, I don't think there's a simple answer. I don't think there's some clear-cut, one-size-fits-all blanket answer for that situation or for that, uh, that type of, of relationship. I think what needs to happen is the individual who's in abuse needs to come to seek pastoral counseling. There just needs to be a one-on-one sort of relationship going on between this this victim and in the church and there needs to be communication and clear communication this can't be a one-size-fits-all question especially because the bible doesn't actually speak to it with any sort of explicity explicit uh yeah explicitness um the next thing we have to talk about before we move on in matthew 5 is is what happens when divorce has already taken place so you're you're hearing Jesus' words and you're like, okay, so an unbiblical reason uh, is considered adultery. I'm remarried now. Does that make me a perpetual adulteress? Like, does that make me like a day in and day out adulterer because I'm remarried now? I think that's a really fair question. I mean, some people might even ask, do I divorce my new wife and go back to my old wife? Like, is that what I do here? You know, that I, I think those are fair questions. They're, they're, they're difficult questions, but I, I think the honest answer is, is no. You don't divorce the new wife and go back to the old wife. Like, I mean, first off, just imagine how weird that is. Like, I've been divorced for 20 years, and you, like, go back, travel across the country, and, like, hey, I just realized we're actually still married. Like, mm, yeah, right, you know? Uh, that's not going to be a great conversation. Um, I think in reality, the the biblical response here is pretty simple. Two wrongs do not make a right. God is the God of the present. He is the God of the now. And therefore you just live in what you are at now and you seek to be faithful in the situation you are in now. And so if, if you are a divorced woman and now you've been remarried, that doesn't make you a perpetual adulterer. There's grace here, right? Was that decision correct to be divorced and be remarried? Um, for unbiblical reasons? No. But that doesn't mean you don't move forward in life. Seek God's forgiveness and seek to be faithful today to your new spouse, to your new family. Right? There is room for grace here. Let's, let's not forget that it's not as though divorce is the unforgivable sin. You know, divorce and remarriage makes you just an unforgiven, unforgivable sinner. That's not the case. That's not the case. God's grace covers even adultery, even divorce. So, with all that said, let me just summarize what we see within the pages of Scripture. I think the New Testament is clear on this. Uh, Divorce is never ideal. It's never to be pursued by a Christian. However, there are some cases of exemptions, uh, or exceptions, rather. If there's adultery, divorce and remarriage are permissible. If there's abandonment, in that case, the, the non-Christian is pursuing divorce. For the Christian who's been abandoned, remarriage is permissible. In the case of death, remarriage is permissible. But again, we have to point out that Jesus is calling Christians to a, a form of love that is radical and it's, it's excessively committed to the other. We are called to imitate the love of Jesus. Christians give an earthly portrait of Christ's love for the church. And therefore, let's demonstrate faithfulness even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of brokenness and difficulty. 
That's the calling that we have as Christians. We have a calling to commitment. We have the calling to imitate God to the best of our abilities. God has shown his faithfulness to the bride, uh, the church, even in the face of remarkable spiritual adultery. I mean, think of all the examples throughout the Old Testament where God's people turned the cheek and pursued spiritual harlotry, and yet God still pursued them with his steadfast love. That's the story of God's relationship to his people. His remarkable faithfulness to an unfaithful bride. And therefore, as the church, at times, we may need to exemplify that same exact type of love to the best of our ability, to the best of our capacity. God remains faithful to his promises. And therefore, let's seek to imitate that by being faithful to the vows and the promises that we make. And I think this actually leads directly into our next uh, section of Matthew. And just fair warning, we're going to spend less time here. Uh, We've spent a, a bit of time on divorce, but in this next section of Matthew, we'll spend a little less time. So let's go back to Matthew 5. Uh, verses 33 through 37. Matthew 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take... An oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what, you have, uh, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. So again, this is directly tied to what we just saw regarding divorce. Marriage is a vow between two individuals. It's a promise to two individuals, between two individuals. It's a dedication to one another. And now Jesus is calling us to be radically committed, not only to the wedding vow, but to be radically committed to our word in any given situation of life, no matter what it is. In a sense, he takes this whole conversation about divorce and vows and marriage and he makes it go even deeper and further. We're not only talking about the importance of our vows with important matters of life like marriage. Now we're talking about the importance of our word and the rudimentary aspects of life. He wants us to come at life with a simple integrity. Your yes ought to mean yes and your no ought to mean no. That's it. Jesus' point is simple. Let your yes mean yes. Enough of the nonsense where we bind ourselves through oaths as though we are making the simple word yes or no mean nothing. Think for a minute. Why are you quick to make an oath anyways? Are you trying to say that you really mean it now whereas when you just said yes, you didn't actually mean it? Like what's the actual point of an oath in the first place? Because you say, I swear on my mother's grave, is that supposed to mean that uh, you're now more serious than you were when you gave a simple yes? What about the other times when you didn't use an oath? Were you less serious then? Were you not as committed to your word at that time? Were you not um, committed to, to what you bound yourself to through your word? 
You know, it's actually funny. David Morgan and I, uh, he's, our, he's a pastor here at the church, and we were talking today about a conversation he had with a salesman. This was like a few weeks ago when he had this conversation. And uh, this salesman told David, he was trying to sell David on a loan. And quite frankly, it was like a really bad sale. If you were wise, you'd just be like, no, why would I ever do that? That's a really dumb decision. And this salesman told David, uh, I would even tell my daughter to make this deal. So think about what the salesman's doing right there. Not only is he lying, because he would never tell his, unless he's just a unintelligent individual. He would never um, tell his daughter to take this deal. Um, and yet, what, it, what is he doing? He's trying to manipulate the situation. He's trying to convince David in that moment, this is a good deal. I'm going to put my word on it. I'd even, I'd even sell this to my daughter. I'd make this deal to my daughter. Right? It's this emotional uh, uh, draw. He's trying to put weight to what he is saying. Right? That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Trying to manipulate people with an oath. Uh, I, I'm thinking of the, the situation that just took place in Chicago with Jesse Smollett. He, he comes out of prison. Even his prosecutor is saying he's guilty. And he comes out and he's saying, I'm maintaining my innocence. Um, I'm going to maintain my innocence. And he said something along the lines of like, uh, if my my mother knew uh, that these accusations against me, if if she knew they were true, she would roll over in her grave or something. And he makes this like crazy statement. And you're like, but everyone is agreeing you are guilty. Even the people who just let you out of jail are still saying you're guilty. They're just saying they're showing you grace. And yet you're coming unapologetically, just lying through your teeth and saying, if my mother was here, you, you, like what? It's the same sort of thing. It's an emotional appeal. It's, it's an oath that is meant to manipulate. As Christians, we ought to be men and women of integrity though not dependent on some sort of oath in order to bind ourselves to something. No, if you call in sick to work, then you call in when you're actually sick. Right? You don't call in when you're not sick, not when you're just trying to play hooky. God is calling us to a higher standard. He's calling us to, to stick to the, uh, the commitments that we make. Like when you say you're going to be somewhere, you ought to just show up. When you say you're going to do something, you ought to just make it happen to the best of your abilities. If you say you're going to serve on a team here at Kairos or or serve on a a team here at the church, then you need to keep your word. You need to show up. To the best of your abilities, you need to make sure what you committed to is what actually happens. If you tell your boss you're going to show up early, you show up early, you keep your word. To the best of your abilities, you make sure that your yes actually means yes and your no actually means no. You got to keep your word as a Christian. That's all Jesus is saying. And I keep saying to the best of your ability because at the end of the day, you aren't sovereign over your own life. You are not ultimately in control of what happens throughout the course of your day. And so you need to keep your word to the best of your ability, knowing that at the end of the day, God is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who, who guides my steps. And Jesus is addressing this very thing. He's pointing out that oaths imply that you think you actually have the ability to make something happen at the end of the day. It's like you can't even make a hair on your head turn gray. 
Who are you to promise that you are able to make this thing happen? Like if someone comes to you and says, I give you my word, I'm going to pay for your tuition. Like you'd be pretty excited, right? Um, I think everyone here would if you're in school. But the reality is, is even a promise like that, when you're saying, I give you my word, I'm going to do this for you. Hopefully, but who knows? You could walk out these doors and get a phone call from your bank and realize you just went bankrupt. Like, and then you can't. You can't pay my tuition. At the end of the day, you don't have the ability to oversee your life and, and make guarantees. So Jesus is also addressing that. He's recognizing that, that there are many out there who think that they can control their days and so they make guarantees by their words and that's just nonsense. You're not in control. You're at the mercy of your heavenly Father who plans out your days. He gives you life and breath. So be faithful to the best of your abilities. You see, the goal of everything that we've just hit on, whether it's divorce, whether it's, it's seeking to obey through, through our oaths, and all of these things, we are seeking to obey God with wholehearted devotion, wholehearted service and love. God is is calling us to resist that temptation to find loopholes in his word in order to justify our own cravings. God wants us to do away with going to his word in order to justify our desires. I want a divorce. I want to marry her instead of my current wife. Where can I go in the Bible to justify that? God's not concerned with with the way you act and only the way you act. He's also concerned with your heart, what you desire. I didn't keep my word, but I never really bound myself to it. I never really made an oath. It was just a white lie. God is calling us to heartfelt obedience. He's calling us to be excessively committed to one another in marriage, regardless of what happens in that marriage. He is calling us to be excessively committed to our word as far as we are able to make our word mean something. God is calling us to be steadfast and faithful to keep our word at all times. And he wants us to do this because he is faithful to his people. He wants us to remain faithful in the midst of marriage because he is faithful to his bride. He is the ultimate exemplar of an individual who has entered into a marriage covenant and remained faithful to a wayward wife. He's the ultimate individual who, who is the exemplar of what it means to remain faithful to his word, no matter what situation he finds himself in. So, as we pointed out a couple weeks ago, This is all how we can be salt and light in the earth. Remember, this is all in the context of us being the salt and light of the earth. Us representing God to a watching world. If we want to represent God to a watching world, let us imitate God by being faithful to our word and being faithful in our marriages. Let's pray.